Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When I was pregnant, my most worn item of clothing were my maternity jeans, so comfy and stretchy. I was also obsessed with finding shirts that would allow me to breastfeed discreetly. Maternity wear has improved over the years, but it's always been something women need to consider. Dr. Katrina Fisk is a dress historian and an expert in the history of maternity wear. Hi, Katrina. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. So I have to start with your title, which I absolutely love. What exactly does a dress historian do? Well, as the title suggests, uh, we study the history of dress, um, and that involves not just what we wear, but why we wear it, what it's made of, and also how that is kind of uh, indexed to social changes, economic changes, changes in technology, everything from sort of war to the smallest changes in the availability of fabric is tied up in dress. Um, so uh, it's, it's really interesting in that way, um, and that's what's fascinated me and, and the rest of my fellow dress historians about it as a subject. It's something we often ignore, but is so potent to understanding those, those way of lives. There's a theorist I often quote um, called Anne Hollander who talks about dress as the eternal in the ephemeral, and I just love that. I think that sums up so beautifully why it's such a fascinating topic. Now, you chose uh, maternity wear in particular. Why was this something that grabbed your attention? Oh, it's, it's a story I often tell that I was watching TV and I saw this like, period drama. You know, you're always watching those old shows on TV. I love them. I'm sure some of the audience do as well. Um, and I was watching TV and this character came on in a 19th century dress and she was massively pregnant. I think it was an old... 80s or 90s recording of Anna Karenina. I can't remember the actress's name at the moment, but um, that was a a wonderful thing. And I saw it, um, and having a bit of experience studying dress, I went, that's incredible. What on earth is she wearing? And so started to try and figure out, you know, oh, well, is that based on a real dress? What did they wear at that period? Um, And I started to find two things. The first was that there wasn't really an answer in kind of academic books or in public knowledge. And everyone said, oh, well, it didn't survive, so it's all a mystery because, you know, pregnant women were invisible. But also I started to find some examples available on online museum collections. And I thought, well, that can't be true because I can see three or four of them. Um, And the question hung around in my mind, like those really annoying questions do. Um, And eventually I decided I was going to have to answer it. Um, So I set out to study it in more detail about five, six years ago now. And you've got a beautiful PhD book to prove that you've done that work. Um, So, I mean, this is probably too simplistic a question, given that six years of study. But um, that idea people had that pregnant women were invisible, what's your response to that now after all the research that you've done? It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, from a common sense point of view, it's just impractical. Um, Although there's some truth in the social stigma around pregnancy, particularly in the later Victorian period, they had lives to to get on with. They had work to do. It's like women working outside the home. There's a particularly mid-20th century perception that before the 
social changes of, of that latter half of the 20th century, that women were completely invisible, didn't work outside the home and were very restricted. And those, that understanding of restriction is a bit simplistic um, because, of course, pregnant women were everywhere. They had to be. It's kind of obvious in the fact that we're all still here. Um, and, you know, just like today, the washing still had to be done. The shopping still had to be done. Um, you had to work on, on whatever domestic or public version you were. So um, what started to become obvious as I dug into the study was not only were there examples of their clothes, but you could find these little tidbits of, of instances of pregnant women in all points of history. I mean, uh, a great example is uh, Queen Charlotte, who was uh, the George III's wife, sort of late 18th century in Britain. Um, and, you know, this, you couldn't get more of an example of kind of establishment and, and following the rules in that way. Um, but she, uh, when she was in her later pregnancies, she went to a couple of big celebrations for her son's birthday. And it's not said, obviously, but if you start to compare the dates, she's eight months pregnant. So, of course, she's there, you know, and that really, I think, is quite powerful. And it's one thing that I try to bring up whenever I talk about the subject is that we should really see ourselves in continuum rather than contrast to these legacies of, of pregnant women as a part of, of society. And pregnancy is not just de defined by binaries of invisible or visible. And it's all very complicated pregnancy. And it was then too. And while you were saying that, it made me think, um, I remember when I was pregnant and looking for those discreet breastfeeding shirts. Mm -hmm. And even now, so my son's seven years old now, so seven years on from that period, I can see there are more options for pregnant women now and what they can wear. What does that speak to? Because obviously in your research, you've seen that they've always adjusted clothing for pregnant women. What do you see as that um, increase in choice? What does that reflect? It reflects, as most dress does, simultaneous changes in social expectation and individual pressures of choice. In the contemporary maternity wear market, obviously market choices are the primary driver. Uh, the fact that I see it particularly in breastfeeding active wear, which is a wonderfully contemporary phenomenon. Um, and it, it exists because it sells and it meets a need. Um, and that's interesting in and of itself. Uh, but it doesn't, from my point of view, indicate that there was a, a great lack of that necessarily beforehand, more that that impulse was met in a different way. Um, so in the 19th century, you see breastfeeding corsets, breastfeeding dresses. Women also make adjustments to their own clothes. They cut slits sometimes in the dress just to allow them to access the breast for nursing. Um, so there's always this push and pull between what the dress of the time dictates as the fashionable silhouette or the desirable identity um, for bodies of all genders, but of course particularly for women's dress in this um, specific case, and you negotiate that against the individual needs of a particular pregnancy. Um, and one thing that I find interesting about the contemporary situation is because it's dictated by the market, there's much more of a sense of there's one way um, that you should be doing things and that's always a trap <laughs> um, whereas I think you know there isn't a particular pattern that's going to work for every pregnancy for every person that's 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 facing those challenges so what I think it says about a contemporary understanding of breastfeeding is that it continues to evolve um, and isn't as simple as being unacceptable then and acceptable now 
Yeah, because I've, I've had a flick through your book and there's definitely paintings of women, I don't know, it looked like it was the 17, 1800s, breastfeeding in public. So it can't just be this modern thing where we're like, oh, go over there and don't be seen. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so uh, in Britain, thinking of Queen Victoria as the ultimate symbol of Victorian morality. <laughs> um, so the Great Exhibition in the 1850s often held up um, in the field of design in particular as a hugely arguably over-discussed influential <laughs> moment. Um, if you read some reports of what's happening, there were uh, like newspaper reports and commentaries of people who were at the Great Exhibition who talk about seeing nursing women at the exhibition. And that's just such a thing to wrap your head around compared to our perception of the Victorians is that that would be unimaginable. Um, but both from those sort of tidbits of documentary information, but also from the dresses, we know that they did breastfeed. Um, and the whole idea of what counts as public is also interesting in that, you know. Um, we're sitting in a, in a cafe now, um, but was there really a corollary of that in the late 18th and early 19th century? Well, what is the public, what does it mean to do it public? It's, it's a really interesting question in that way. Um, you also mentioned, like we started at the beginning of this conversation, talking about invisibility and whether pregnant women were invisible. And you said, well, they had to be out doing their thing anyway. Um, the dress, the dresses in your PhD are so extraordinary and beautiful and made, many of them made of quite rich materials. Mm. Um, and I'm just wondering in that sense of if you're talking about having a, uh, um, a queen come out to a party in a, a frock when she's eight months pregnant, did you find examples of those kind of social situations where women weren't trying to hide their pregnancy or did women use fashion when they went out in those public situations to try and hide it? Both, of course. Um, and my point about the idea of there being a single should is is highlighted by that contrast and of course in the 18th and 19th century particularly this is indexed to class and circumstance um, so both the choice about what to wear the availability of the fabric to choose what you wear when you're pregnant is is a privilege um, and therefore it's much more likely that these more fabulous dresses belong to queens and princesses um, but also because their reproductive histories are so much more observed as a matter of natural, national significance back then. Um, so that's an interesting aspect of it. I do want to highlight that the majority of the dresses I found are for that kind of half indoors domestic setting. Dressing gowns, wrappers, which are a kind of informal dress that you wear inside. Um, loose fitted dresses that you wouldn't wear for formal occasions, but more things that can be worn you know, in the house or in sort of semi-formal situations. They are the majority of what we find. Um, and they were more commonly worn by women lower down the social orders, quite practically because they couldn't afford to have something that didn't do double, triple, quadruple duty, um, as was the lot of, of any practical dress uh, from that period of time. Um, so that's how that operates in terms of the, the variation. What I find fascinating is that there are some situations where... The pregnancy is important and, and wants to be demonstrated. Um, and that sense of, of feeling observed and having to negotiate the bodily politics of appearing pregnant is fascinating. There are some wonderful letters from the late 18th century of just the meanest comments from high society <laughs> ladies about um, other women who are seen to be pregnant. There's one in particular, 
thing from the 1780s who described her friend as looking like a ship carrying all before her, which is just not very nice at all. I don't know how they'd get away with that now. Um, and you had a, I saw online there was a video where you talked a little bit about your research. When I say a little bit, it was like three minutes. So obviously the very, very pinnacle of the iceberg. Um, but you talked about a corset in particular that you found. And when you first started talking, I was horrified that a pregnant woman should have to wear a corset. But even in that garment, you found it's not that straightforward, is it? Yeah, it's a classic item that people are horrified to think about the existence of maternity corsets. Um, And I try to argue that it would actually be more horrific if they didn't exist in many ways. Um, So they are garments that were essential for the wearing of clothes, structured the way they were in that period. But also, there are no bras, there are no support garments. You don't suddenly stop wearing support garments when you get pregnant. In fact, it's often the alternative. And you can still see support bands and bellies used today to help support the weight of of the pregnancy. Um, And the particular example you're talking about is from the 1830s-ish. It's hard to pinpoint because it's been altered several times. But in this dress, they take out the smaller, in this corset, sorry, they take out the smaller bits of support that would have been useful for a non-pregnant figure and add in these big sort of (laughs) two-inch wide back supports and straps to help hold the weight of the pregnancy. And this was a a significant size. Um, So it's quite practical. It's carrying the weight. And I think, you know, people who've had that embodied experience of being pregnant can find some sympathy there. Um, And similarly, they often um, alter the corsets to be able to use them through nursing and breastfeeding as well. Um, And while there are obviously situations where this was damaging, I'm really important. I think it's really important to um, understand that there are two sides to that story, and the ability to alter a corset to be able to nurse in it is evidence of that particular wearer negotiating the dress that's available to them with the needs of their body and the feeding of their child um, or indeed someone else's child in the case of wet nurses and so on. So it is as much evidence of a more complicated state of social freedom as it is of a uniform repression and that actually applies to corsets as a whole but that's a bigger discussion. I I reckon we could probably do half an hour on corsets itself, (laughs) themselves I should say. I love that take on it but you've also... um, got my interest in terms of when it perhaps wasn't used appropriately as clothing for women is often um, both ways you can use it in a way to express yourself feel good about yourself or try to make your body a different shape were women ever using corsets to try and reduce the size of their pregnant bellies absolutely Um, and we can find that with again a sort of common sense understanding Um, I often talk about the fact that the lace on the corset is a two-way technology you can lace in and lace out Um, and that fact often escapes a kind of sensationalist understanding of corsets as only used to sort of tight lace to death Um, and I would caution that the the great uh, fashion historian Valerie Steele says in her book that a lot of the reports of tight lacing across the range um, of particularly Victorian women's are kind of exaggerated, sensationalist press pieces. So we have to be careful about how much we treat them as real. Um, but there are instances of women using their corsets to reduce their size to hide a pregnancy, um, to reduce the size of the pregnancy, to appear more just nondescript. Again, you know, I think that we can understand that, not wanting everyone staring at your belly. And examples that are truly tragic um, from the 18th and 19th century where women who are pregnant 
and don't want to be pregnant in a situation where they're not able to be seen to be pregnant servants, um, unfortunate situations where their masters or leaders have, have abused them and they have become pregnant as a result. Um, and they often turn up in legal records. Um, there's one in the late 18th century where she uses her corset to try and keep her belly flat as long as possible, gives birth in secret and the child dies, and this comes out in the court, court records because, of course, she's being put on trial for infanticide. Um, and that's just so tragic. So I think it's important to balance those two sides together. So I have seen that you've looked at as early as the 1700s. Is that the furthest back you go with your studies? How far back did you go? What was the earliest form of maternity wear that you've seen? What was it and, and how, what was it like? So officially my studies started around the mid-18th century, but there are examples from earlier. Um, there's a wonderful 17th century uh, maternity bodies, which is another word for an early form of stay or corset, um, from the late 17th century, um, again from quite a, a well-documented you know, reasonably high-status woman, um, which is a classic example to see and, and so wonderful to see from the 17th century. Um, so in terms of surviving examples, early 17th, mid-17th century is the earliest that I've seen um, in that 1600s periods. But of course, they existed beforehand. Um, but surviving examples of everything sort of tail off a little bit. Um, and also the collections we have in, in museums are less representative um, of that period of time. So I would say that it's not that they didn't exist before then, because obviously they had to. Yeah. Um, it's that our collections don't represent it. Um, but when thinking about the history of maternity dress, the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we mean by that? Do we mean clothes that could only be worn while pregnant, like we often do today? Well, of course, that's quite a contemporary phenomenon. But clothes, by definition, for a female figure, were often adaptable to pregnancy across the centuries because that was a practical necessity. Are you able to pinpoint a time where you think that uh, maternity wear was the best and, and what would you consider to be the best? And it has to it, as your own opinion. You don't have uh, yeah. to say this is an academic. From your <laughs> observation. Oh, that's a, it's a really tricky question, that one. Um, Personally, um, and it was a bit after my uh, original period of PhD study, I have a soft spot for the 1970s because they're so crazy. <laughs> There's a particular outfit I saw in a collection in North Dakota in the United States um, of a woman who was a seamstress and she made her own maternity clothes throughout the 60s and 70s. And the, she made this 1970s maternity suit that is bonkers. Big pointed collars huge printed trousers with an elastic panel over the belly it's horrendous and <laughs> feeling the fabric I think you must have been like wearing a furnace um, but I love that because it's so out there and there are examples of just taking that sort of flower child 1970s and then into the high glamour um, and moving it that way so that's a personal favorite in terms of the period I studied if I had to choose a period to wear their maternity wear it would probably be the late 18th early 19th century um, when the higher waists and the drawstring became very fashionable because there's an extent to which it's easier to adapt um, in that period. But important to note, I wouldn't take the obstetric care at that period. <laughs> I mean, that's important to note as well, that throughout your studies you were also studying the history of childbearing mm. and birth. I mean, how, how entwined is that with the dress and what you learnt there? It's quite entwined, um, and it's an area that, that fascinates me um, and is interestingly something that 
that makes a lot of sense from a personal point of view with sort of medical professionals in my family and obstetricians as well. It's a really interesting contrast. So they are entwined to a certain extent, particularly when doctors um, in the 18th and 19th century start publishing childbirth guides. So this is how you should behave when you're pregnant. A lot of them are, as you might suspect, also bonkers. Um, You know, bizarre senses. And and some of them make from kind of quasi-mythological understandings, old wives' tales becoming cemented or denigrated by doctors um, in these pamphlets. Um, You can find advice there on what you should and shouldn't wear. And it's where a lot of the advice about don't tight-lace your corset comes from. And it's got this slightly paternalistic idea as if you needed so-and-so MD to tell you not to tight-lace your corset. (laughs) Um, But they also contain tidbits like the importance of walking, keeping active, and a lot of the advice uh, emphasizes not putting too much weight on the belly for reasons that they thought this was was damaging and therefore you should have stuff that allows you to carry the weight of your clothing from the shoulders. So when you see those alterations in dresses, you can start to think that that might have been the impetus behind what they were doing. So they, they touch on each other in these ways. And of course, as the care for women becomes more taken over by professional medicine and the history of obstetrics and gynecology, which is full of bitter arguments and hugely significant moments with really awful consequences you can see that the commercialization the streamlining the officialization of maternity wear from something that you would do for yourself altering your existing clothes to something you had to buy from a shop kind of charts the increasing medicalization of childbirth so there's something really interesting going on there and one of the the things that I theorize, completely theorizing here, I don't have academic evidence for it yet, is that one of the most infantile periods or infantilizing periods of maternity dress is the 1950s. Bows, frills, big, you know, it's just all quite girlish. Um, and my opinion is that it, it tracks a sort of re-feminization and re-domesticization after the war that also accompanies a baby boom and a baby boom where the obstetric care in the 1950s in particular is heavily infused with a very, what we now understand as a very sexist understanding. Some of the, the treatments that you can read about in the history of maternity wear would put you off childbirth ever. Um, and that's really interesting to see them that in, interact in that way. Okay, well, I can't wait for that book and that <laughs> chapter of your study. Katrina, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's Dr. Katrina Fisk. She's a dress historian and an expert in the history of maternity wear. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time. Listener.